series in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is greater. He's greater than anything that we can imagine or compare ourselves uh, desires to. Today we'll be looking at chapter 3 of Hebrews, and we're going to be comparing Jesus Christ to Moses. Moses, of course, we're going to look at his, his, his uh, abilities later on, but as I was thinking, comparing Christ to such a great man like Moses, and I was, I was trying to think of different things, and, you know, I come up with something, Chuck, that I know that you're going to be glad to hear me talk about. I thought about com- comparing the University of Alabama, great university football team, but you know, they won so many championships, and they're good. But I think if Alabama were to play even the Chicago Bears, they might get beat. What do you think, Chuck? Yeah, they would lose. Yeah. Because that's a totally different group, right? And so today, when we look at a great man, Moses, used by God, powerfully. We're going to look and we're going to compare him to Jesus Christ and see that in reality there is no comparison. (laughs) Today, I remind you as we begin, the book of Hebrews was written to second generation Jewish believers. Some were being persecuted and some had left the faith. And others were thinking about leaving. And the author here is saying, going back is not an option. And he gives the church three directives. One, fix your eyes on Jesus. Two, guard your heart. And three, encourage one another. I think it's important that we remember as we look at this book, again, whom is it addressed to? And we see in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the holy calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Three words here. Holy brothers. We could say holy brothers and sisters. And you who share in the heavenly calling, those who confess Jesus as apostle and high priest of our confession, these are believers. But at the same time as the writer was writing, he, he's very aware that in a church, the church may be made up of a lot of believers, but there probably are some in the church who aren't a part of the body of Christ. So he wants to warn them. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus Christ. And the NIV says that we're to run that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Well, what does the author want us to set before us? What, is, what are we to be looking at? as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Again, verse 1 says that, Consider Jesus, the 
apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. One is we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. This passage is kind of divided into two sections, one through six, where we look at the comparison of Jesus with Moses. And then seven through 19, we'll be looking at a warning, which I believe goes, along, goes on showing the superiority of Jesus Christ over Moses. Few people compare favorably with Moses. How many people have been called into ministry from a burning bush? He was God's prophet as he announced the plagues in Egypt and as they were removed. He was the one who led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Do you remember when God revealed himself and his glory on Mount Sinai? They saw the turbulence, the thunder, the, the, the loud sound, the fire. And they were scared and they asked Moses, to be their mediator between them and God. And along with that, we'll see over and over that he interceded for them. Moses was especially admired for his role in the reception of the law of Moses. In addition to all this, he's a great military leader. Think about it. Beginning with Pharaoh's army, he led Israel in defeating these armies. Moses was a judge. Do you remember when his uh, father-in-law Jethro came and said, you, you're killing yourself, you can't do this. And he began, he divided up the people amongst them. But he was that final judge and arbitrator in the midst of life for the nation of Israel. And don't forget that Moses was an author. He penned the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was very humble, more so than any man on the face of earth. That's powerful, isn't it? God himself testifies to the greatness of this man Moses. Numbers 12.6-8 talks about the fact that God says that with all the prophets, I speak through dreams and visions, but with him I speak face to face and openly, not in riddles. And he will see the form of our Lord. Moses even appears in the transfiguration with Jesus in the New Testament. And although Moses is this great man, very revered, very much admired, there's a problem. The Jews were too devoted to Moses. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. We never place our hope in mankind, right? Because man will fail. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, the Pharisees are confronting this blind man who had been healed. And they said, you are his disciple? We, we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses. Moses was a great man. 
maybe a little bit too great in the minds of some of the Jews. He was that high water mark for all men in the Old Testament. And these Jewish believers were tempted to go back, to go back to this man Moses. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were being spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast in our confidence, in our boasting, in our hope. The word therefore, verse 1, tells us to look back, right? Look back for the context. The author is telling us it's all connected. If you remember chapter 1, we saw that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the complete revelation. They needed no other revelation besides him. That he was supreme over all creation because he was the creator of all things. And that he was supreme over angels. And chapter 2 tells us of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son, and how he lived and suffered on earth among men, and how he died sacrificially and was buried and resurrected and ascended into heaven. And now we look and we see in chapter 3, Moses and Jesus were both faithful in their responsibilities. <clears throat> Again, whoop. both were faithful. The author here then contrasts Jesus as much more revered than Moses, much more important. These descriptions of Jesus correspond to two of our great needs. An apostle or messenger of God, and Jesus is our high priest. Apostle means one sent. He represents God to us. And it's through Jesus Christ, the messenger, that we found out who God is. And high priest means one who is a go-between. He represents God. Or he represents us to God. As he offers sacrifices, he offers that reconciliation that we can have through Christ. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He is that final, once for all, high priest of God who sacrificed of himself reconciled you and me if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior and guarantees our homecoming. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, there's a guarantee 
that we see heaven. Consider Jesus, God's apostle, the final word from God. Consider Jesus, God's high priest, the final way to God. Consider Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is about considering Jesus. He's superior to angels. He created and sustains the world. And angels just run errands, even though they're high, lifted up. The point is that every stage in this book is all about consider Jesus. Consider him. Ponder him. Fix your eyes on him. Focus on him. Take dead aim at who Jesus Christ is. And when we do, when we consider, we'll see that he is superior over all things. And in this passage, he is superior to Moses. Why should we even consider? Because when we consider Jesus, our confidence in our heavenly calling, our confidence in our salvation is made stronger. And our hope is bolder as we consider Jesus. In verses 2 through 6, the author of Hebrews mentions two ways that Jesus is superior to Moses. Seeing Jesus in a fresh way is important because it builds our trust and our joyful hope, steadfast to the end. And, and as we look at this comparison, the writer is not putting down Moses in any way as he contrasts them. That's not the point. Moses was faithful in the household of God. When the writer turns to contrast Jesus and Moses, it really means something because Moses was one of a kind. One of a kind. First, we see Jesus and Moses compared as builder of the house. Jesus is a builder of God's house, God's people. It's not talking about a, a building. It's talking about the body of Christ. Jesus made Moses. Builders have more honor than the buildings they build. Moses was faithful in all he did in the house of God. Christ, though, owned the house. Moses loved God. Christ is God. Moses faithfully pointed everyone to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.1 says that the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of good things to come and not the good things themselves. Jesus, superior, is the builder who created Moses. Secondly, we see Jesus is the son and Moses is a servant. The author explains why we can't go back. And he compares these two men. And as great as Moses was, he was only God's servant. Jesus Christ, God's son, is the ultimate messenger, the ultimate apostle, the ultimate high priest. So he fulfills and replaces the Old Testament way to God. Well, after comparing and contrasting the two, we're hit with a strong statement in verse 6. We're his house. In other words, we're part of the body of Christ if 
Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We see this similar statement in verse 14. We've come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I love how J.D. Phillips translates this. He says, we are members of this household if we maintain our trust and joy, joyful, steadfast to the end. As true believers, we will maintain a walk with God. It will not be a perfect walk, but it should be a pattern in our lives that points people toward Jesus Christ. Too often I've talked with people who have a false hope, or they have false hope for their loved ones. It seems that they live like the devil. They live like the world, so to speak. And they identify with the world, and yet, if you ask them about Jesus, they say, oh, don't worry about it. I, I trusted Jesus when I was six. True faith does not allow us to live as the world lives. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. And secondly, we must guard our hearts. The author moves quickly from the positive examples of Moses and Jesus to a negative one of unfaithful Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. It begins with a quote from Psalm 95. He says, therefore, again we got this therefore, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in, rebellion, in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, and therefore I was provoked with the generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Verse 11, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Numbers 14, if you remember, they were, Israel was ready to go into the promised land, into Canaan. And they sent out 12 spies. Ten came back and says, oh, we can't go in. They're giants. They're giants, and, and we look like grasshoppers. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, the land is a place of milk and honey, and we, with God's help, can overcome. Of course, the nation of Israel chose to believe the ten and not the two. And they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for saying that. Well, Moses interceded for Israel because God's wrath was burning against them. And the Lord replied, He says, I have forgiven them, as you asked. Nevertheless, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. It's important to note that the entire generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, will not be allowed to enter into the land of Canaan, the promised land. 
there's a disagreement among conservative evangelical uh, theologians. Some would say that all died without any hope because they disobeyed. Some would say that there was a remnant and that some were saved. We don't know. <laughs> we do know, however, that they lived in God's presence for 40 years. And they saw his power, and they saw his provision, and yet they never believed. They saw his presence in a powerful way, and yet they chose to not believe. That's scary. That's scary. Again, if those who believe that some were saved, there's always that temporal consequences for sin, even when we're forgiven. We as believers today, we sin, and God forgives us, but our lives sometimes can be destroyed by our sin or sins of others, except for God's grace. And even if there was a remnant of believers in this 1.5 to 2 million people, they suffered even so God assured Moses that their sin was forgiven. In Numbers 20, we read that, once again, the Israelites had come to Kadesh. It had been 40 years since the Israelites first left Egypt. Miriam, Moses' sister, had died. Aaron was about to die. And it's on several occasions what happened. They ran out of water. There was no water. At this point, if you remember, God instructed Moses to not strike the rock as he had said before, but he said, speak to this rock in front of Israel. At this point, Moses was fed up with Israel. Forty years of grumbling and complaining. Forty years various times when they wanted to replace Moses, they wanted to stone them, whatever. They wanted to get rid of him. Forty years. He strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock. God says to Moses, because you didn't trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you would not lead them into the land that I'm giving them. According to God, Moses did not believe God. He disobeyed him. And the result was that neither he nor Aaron, his brother, would be allowed to enter into the promised land, into the rest that was offered to them. Okay. I, I want to stop here. Bear with me. There, there's so much technical stuff, so much to, to, to deal with, and so I want to just kind of take a Quick break from the text, and I want us to look at the word rest. We see rest several times in chapter 3. We see it in chapter 4 and throughout the book. In the Old Testament, the idea of rest was presented in two ways. First, the Sabbath rest. And that was a, the day that all of Israel rested from routine labor. Then there was the promise of rest from wandering and from journeying or enemy threat 
getting into Canaan, getting into the promised land. These two strands are combined in the New Testament in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, and Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Matthew 11 is one that we probably all know. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We see here in chapter 3 several indications that there's more than one kind of rest being talked about. First, there's the rest of those entering into the land of Canaan, which is the first generation, and they failed to get in. But then there's the rest for that second generation who did go in. They, too, were offered rest. And they're already in the promised land. Hebrews 4, 7 through 10 talks about the fact that Joshua, if Joshua, had given that second generation of Israel rest, then God would not have spoken of another day. And so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, I just wanted to, to touch on that. We'll go back now to the, the text, to the passage. Earlier I meant, as I read, verse 7 says, therefore. So we look back. We see that this passage, this warning passage, is being connected with the first six verses. In the first six verses, we looked at and compared Jesus Christ, the man, his ministry, his work, to Moses. So we see, I think, in the a, in a same way, a very subtle way, we see that the author is adding further proof that the Son is greater than Moses. Moses was not able to go in to the promised land himself. He wasn't able to lead Israel into the promised land, into God's rest. We know that through Christ Jesus, we have rest. Surely, as we think about this whole thing, and again, there's so much confusion because we're not totally positive. Some conclude that Moses' failure to enter into this particular rest, that he was apostate. I, I can't believe that. <laughs> um, we know that he was seen with Christ in the transfiguration. But look at our own lives. God desires that we enter into his rest. If you think about it, if we look at the nation of Israel, we're so much like Israel, aren't we? Our heart tends to want to rebel, to be disobedient, to grumble and to complain. And God here is saying, he's warning us, don't go back. Don't go back to the old world. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't look back. Don't go back. Look forward. Look at those who are persevering. And hold fast to the end. See, the test of reality of being a Christian is continuing. Right? True faith is demonstrated by a continual walk with God. Again, our walk will not be perfect, but there will be a pattern of walking by faith. 
true believer will persevere to the end. Hebrews 3, verses 6 and 14 are for me, and they are for you. We are his house if we hold to our faith. We are, or we've come to share in Christ if we hold on to that confidence in him. This warning reminds us that we can't live our lives as the world lives. We can't identify with the world and consider ourselves to be true believers. If we're true believers, our lives will change. The Spirit of God will change us. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. He leads us to show love to others. Friday, I was at Costco. Anybody who goes to Costco knows that Costco, they have these sample tables for food. I was walking along, and I reached over to grab a taco. Now, the lady who was in charge quickly grabbed my hand and pushed it back and said a few words that weren't very nice. But then my response wasn't good. I said, that was ugly. You're ugly. I didn't mean ugly as looks. But <laughs> I walked away, and immediately the Spirit of God convicted me through and through. Did I go back immediately and say, I'm, 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 I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that. No. I went through Costco, fighting with God, arguing with the Spirit of God. <laughs> I left there, and I went to Aldi, and the whole time I was there, and you know how it is, you know, God, you know, she shouldn't have done that. She, she, was, she had a bad day, God. She, was, she shouldn't have done that. And I argued. You know, thankfully, by God's grace, I went back. And I went, I went back and I was thinking... I hope she's not there. <laughs> and I got to where I thought she was, and there was nobody there. But then I looked beyond. There she was. There she was. And she was by herself, thank God. I went up to her, and I put my arm on her shoulder, and I said, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. She said, you're not ugly. Maybe you could have handled things differently, but I... I was wrong. I was wrong. And I should never say it. And she smiled and she said, I'm sorry too. I wanted to give her a hug, but I wasn't sure I should do that. It's not a pretty picture of me, but it's who I am. And even the fact that we're back was because the Spirit of God working in me. I was embarrassed. My point is, we can't continue to live life as the world lives. As true believers, the Spirit of God is working in us. He's changing us. And will we sin? Yes. We will sin. But there is forgiveness. Paul Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress gives us these 
warnings or signs of a hard heart. And they remind us we need to guard our hearts. Because our hearts are hardened, there's a forgetfulness of God. When we sin, sometimes we're not thinking about God. There's that gradual loss of private prayer and devotions, a loss of holiness. There's a curbing of, of uh, there's a loss, rather, of curbing our lust and genuine sorrow for our sins. We begin to avoid the company of strong believers who love the Lord. The disinterest in public worship. Oh, we'll come. We'll come to church. But our hearts aren't wanting to worship. We begin to see all the planks in the eyes of everyone else. Because we all got them, don't we? We all sin. We all fall short. We begin to associate with the godless. Maybe look at offensive movies, porn. Seek out old friends. Become involved in fleshly lust and secret. And secret sin will hold its grip on us. Then we began to play with sin openly, become more brazen. Jeremiah 12, 8, 12 says, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Being hardened, we eventually revealed the truth of where we are. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Robert Murray McShane man many, many years old that died, says the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Let me, let me repeat that one more time. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Reminded of Psalm 1-1, where instead of walking with God, we begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked, and then we move further, we begin to stop and we stand in the way of sinners. And then we do what? We sit. Because of the reality that that seed of every known sin, known to man, is in our hearts if we acknowledge it. We need each other badly. The reality is that unless we fix our eyes on Jesus, unless we guard our hearts, our hearts will become cold, cold, hard. We need, thirdly, to encourage each other. Encourage each other. Verses 12 through 14 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Don't become blind or deaf to God because sin looks so wonderfully attractive. Sin always looks beautiful, doesn't it? That temptation, we don't see the end result. I heard an illustration of how we need each other 
if you take a fire, and I don't know whether any of you have a fireplace in your home or if you've been camping and you, you have all these coals, you take, take one that's fire hot, with, you know, with fire. You take this coal and you set it aside. Eventually, the fire goes out, begins to cool down, and then it's cold. But the wonderful thing is, we take that coal, put it back on the fire, and it gets burning again. You see, we need each other. And God has strategically placed each of us where we are. He wants us to make a difference. We're the body of Christ. Some of us are eyes, some of us are mouths, others ears, some arms, others feet. We need each other. It's amazing how as we serve together, as we minister together, being together with each other helps it's a strong deterrent to sin and encouragement to walk with God. Encourage each other. Come alongside. We need people far more than we realize. All around us, I'm amazed, all around us, there are people who need a word of encouragement, a note, maybe a phone call or a text message. We need each other. We need each other to ask hard questions. I've mentioned to you, Pastor Young, probably some of you guys think you know him already because I talk about him so much. I love him. He's like a dad. I mentioned how it was so clear that he loved me in all that he did. He pushed me, encouraged me to go to Bible College and seminary to come to, to, uh, to ICI here in Chicago for a summer and then full time. He encouraged me. But he's willing to give me advice that was hard at times. I wanted to go to Talbot Seminary in California, L.A. area, and I got out there, and there's nowhere to live in the dorms. They had overbooked. I had nowhere to live. I, I was coming from Alabama with a super strong accent. You, you think it's strong now? Back then, I couldn't speak without someone saying something. And, and there were other things going on. And, and, and so I called Pastor Young and I said, Pastor Young, I want to go home. I, I, I found out another counseling program that just opened up the next year. And I said, Brother Young, I want to go there. Brother Young looked at me and he uh, brother talked to him on the phone. He said, uh, Ralph, you've been saying for a long time that Jesus was, was leading you. God was leading you to, to Tower Seminary. Stay. Stay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Stick with it. God will provide. Of course, I ended up loving Calvert Seminary, loving Southern California. Many of you know also that Pastor Young was, he offered excellent premarital counseling. You remember what I told you? He called me. He had the nerve to call me one day, my first year at Inner City Impact here in Chicago. He called me and he said, Ralph, either marry Chris or leave her alone. <laughs> marry Chris or leave her alone. You know what happened? 
Within a month, I got engaged. <laughs> I listened. Because I knew that Pastor Young loved me. And he was willing to give me that hard advice. We need godly people in our lives who love us and who are willing to give us that hard advice. John Calvin says that by nature we incline to evil. We have need of various helps to retain us in the fear of God. And he goes on, he says, unless our faith be now and then raised up, it will lie prostrate. Unless it's warmed, it will be frozen. Unless it is roused, it will grow torpid, sluggish, lazy. We never know what the person next to us is going through. For years, I've kept cards, people who scribble little notes of encouragement. I keep them in a file in my desk. You know why? Because I go back in hard times and I pull out these cards and these notes and I read them. We go through difficult times and we need encouragement. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says, One person gives freely and yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly and becomes, um, comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others would be refreshed. Whoever refreshes others would be refreshed. The last three verses, the author asks three questions and then he answers it with three more. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those were disobedient. And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Hebrews 3.15 Today, today, not tomorrow, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart is in the rebellion. Today, today, today you don't know Jesus Christ Put your faith in it. We don't know that we have tomorrow. Today, don't harden your heart if you're a believer. The first generation of Israelites failed to enter into the rest. If an entire generation failed to enter into the rest, the warning based on their experience carries a lot of weight. Have you ever watched these commercials that give you warnings? They, they first tell you all these wonderful things that they're going to do. And then they begin, and I, I look at Chris a lot of times, and I say, I'm, I'm shocked that they say all that. You could go blind, you lose your hair. Sometimes you can die. But we take it. We take the medications. Why do we do that? Because in our minds, we think that maybe half a percent, 
If I take it, my hair is not going to come out. But what do we do with warnings for 99.99% dying? The strong warning to persevere, to walk with God, to live for God, to trust God in the midst of hardship, in the midst of life with the struggles and with so much pain all around us, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. There's no comparison. Guard our hearts. Encourage others. We'll be tempted to give up. Sin will look beautiful. And we'll want to go back to our old life. We'll have others around us who seem to be believers People we loved and we thought that they knew Jesus. And they stepped aside. They went back. And then we began to question our faith. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. You get that? And let me, let me give you the NIV version. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. In other words, they weren't believers. They, they left. They said that they were, they professed Christ, but they weren't really believers. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going shows that none of them belong to us. We make sure our relationship with Christ by walking with Him. And today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. Father, how he's incomparable. And Father, we thank you that we can know and be assured of our, of our faith that we are in Christ. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2. Where it talks about that when we come to Christ, that your spirit is a down payment. It's a deposit. And there's so many verses that talk about that. But, Father, we know that we must persevere. And I pray, Father, today that if there's anyone here who has never truly put their faith in Christ, that they would come forward, that they would make a decision at home or wherever, that they would make a decision to come to Jesus Christ. We can't live as the world lives for very long and have the Spirit of God in us because you convict us and you confront us. So we pray for those who don't know Christ that they would come to faith. And Father, for those who maybe are struggling with hard hearts, maybe are struggling to trust you, Lord, that you would come alongside 
that you would strengthen us in our innermost being. And Father, that you would enable us, that you'd help us to fix our eyes on you, on Jesus. You'd help us to guard our hearts. Now, Father, that we might be a church that encourages each other. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.